Book 15, Part 1 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso, translated by Brooks Moore. Book 15, Part 1. While this was happening, they began to seek for one who could endure the weight of such a task, and could succeed a king so great and fame, the harbinger of truth, destined illustrious Numa for the sovereign power. It did not satisfy his heart to know only the Sabine ceremonials, and he conceived in his expansive mind much greater views, examining the depth and cause of things. His country and his cares forgotten, this desire led him to visit the city that once welcomed Hercules. Numa desired to know what founder built a Grecian city on Italian shores. One of the old inhabitants, who was well acquainted with past history, replied, Rich in Iberian herds, the son of Jove, turned from the ocean, and with favoring wind, tis said, he landed on Licinian shores, and, while the herds strayed in the tender grasses, he visited the house, the friendly home, of far-framed Croton. There he rested from his arduous labors. At the time of his departure, he said, here in future days shall be a city of your numerous race. The passing years have proved the promise true, for Mycellus, choosing that site, marked out a city's walls. Argive Alamon's son, of all the men in his generation, he was most acceptable to the heavenly gods. Bending over him once at dawn, while he was overwhelmed with drowsiness of sleep, the huge club-bearer Hercules addressed him thus, "'Come now, desert your native shores.' Go quickly to the pebbly flowing stream of distant Asar. And he threatened ill in fearful words, unless he should obey. Sleep and the god departed instantly. Alamon's son, arising from his couch, pondered his recent vision thoughtfully, with his conclusions at cross-purposes. The god commanded him to quit the land. The laws forbade it departure, threatening death to all who sought to leave their native land. The brilliant sun had hidden in the sea his shining head, and darkest night had then put forth her starry face, and at that time it seemed as if the same god Hercules was present and repeating his commands, threatening still more and graver penalties, if he should fail to obey. Now sore afraid, he set about to move his household gods to a new settlement, but rumors then followed him through the city, and he was accused of holding statutes in contempt. The accusation hardly had been made when his offence was evidently proved, even without a witness. Then he raised his face and hands up to the gods above, and, suppliant in neglected garb, he exclaimed, O mighty Hercules, for whom alone the twice six labours gave the privilege of heavenly residence, give me your aid, for you were the true cause of my offence. It was an ancient custom of that land to vote with chosen pedals, white and black, the white absolved, the black condemned the man. And so that day the fateful votes were given. All cast into the cruel urn were black. Soon as that urn inverted poured forth all the pebbles to be counted, every one was changed completely from its black to white, and so the vote adjudged him innocent. By that most fortunate aid of Hercules he was exempted from the country's law. Mycellus, breathing thanks to Hercules, with favoring wind sailed on the Ionian Sea, past Salentine Neritum, Cyberus, Spartan Tarentum, and the Cyrene Bay, Cremisa, and on beyond the Iapygian fields. 
Then, skirting shores which faced these lands, he found the place foretold, the river's Asar's mouth, and found not far away a burial mound which covered with its soil the hallowed bones of Croton. There, upon the appointed land, he built up walls, and he conferred the name of Croton, who was there entombed, on his new city, which has ever since been called Crotona. By tradition it is known such strange deeds caused that city to be built, by men of Greece upon the Italian coast. Here lived a man, by birth the Samian. He had fled from Samos, and the ruling class, a voluntary exile, for his hate against all tyranny. He had the gift of holding mental converse with the gods, who lived far distant in the height of heaven, and all that nature has denied to man and human vision he reviewed with eyes of his enlightened soul. And, when he had examined all things in his careful mind with watchful study, he released his thoughts to knowledge of the public. He would speak to crowds of people silent and amazed, while he revealed to them the origin of this vast universe, the cause of things, what is nature, what a god, whence came the snow, the cause of lightning, was it Jupiter, or did the winds, that thundered when the cloud was rent asunder, cause the lightning flash? What shook the earth? What laws controlled the stars as they were moved? And every hidden thing. He was the first man to forbid the use of any animal's flesh as human food. He was the first to speak with learned lips, though not believed in this, exhorting them. No, mortals, he would say, do not permit pollution of your bodies with such food, for there are grain and good fruits which bear down the branches by their weight, and ripen grapes upon the vines and herbs, those sweet by nature and those which will grow tender and mellow with a fire, and flowing milk is not denied, nor honey, redolent of blossoming thyme. The lavish earth yields rich and healthful food, affording dainties without slaughter, death, and bloodshed. Dull beasts delight to satisfy their hunger with torn flesh, and yet not all, horses and sheep and cattle live on grass, but all the savage animals, the fierce Armenian tigers and ferocious lions and bears, together with the roving wolves, delight in viands reeking with warm blood. Oh, ponder a moment such a monstrous crime, vitals in vitals gorged, one greedy body fattening with plunder of another's flesh, a living being fed on another's life. In that abundance which our earth the best of mothers will afford, have you no joy unless your savage teeth can gnaw the piteous flesh of some flayed animal to re-enact the cyclopean crime? And can you not appease the hungry void, that perverted craving of a stomach's greed, unless you first destroy another life? That age of old time which is given the name golden was so blessed in fruit of trees, and in the good herbs which the earth produced, that it never would pollute the mouth with blood. The birds then safely moved their wings in air, the timid hares would wander in the fields with no fear, and their own credulity had not suspended fishes from the hook. All life was safe from treacherous wiles, fearing no injury, a peaceful world. After that time some of ill advice, it does not matter who it might have been, envied the ways of lions and gulped into his greedy paunch, stuffed from a carcass vile. He opened the foul paths of wickedness. It may be that in killing beasts of prey our steel was for the first time warmed with blood. And that could be defended, for I hold that predatory creatures, which attempt destruction of mankind, are put to death without evasion of the sacred laws, but though with justice they are put to death, they cannot be a cause for eating them. This wickedness went further, and the sow was thought to have deserved death as the first of victims, for with her long turned-up snout she spoiled the good hope of a harvest year. 
The ravenous goat that gnawed a sprouting vine was led for slaughter to the altar-fires of angry Bacchus. It was their own fault that surely caused the ruin of those two. But why have a sheep deserved sad destiny? Harmless and useful for the good of man, with nectar and full udders. Their soft wool affords the warmest coverings for our use. Their life and not their death would help us more. Why have the oxen of the field deserved a sad end? Innocent, without deceit, and harmless, without guile, born to endure hard labor. Without gratitude is he, unworthy of the gift of harvest fields, who, after he relieved his worker from weight of the curving plough, could butcher him, could sever with an axe that toil-worn neck, by which so often, with hard work, the ground had been turned up, so many harvests reared. For some, even crimes like these are not enough. They have imputed to the gods themselves abomination. They believe a god in heaven above rejoices at the death of a laborious ox. A victim free of blemish, and most beautiful in form, perfection brings destruction, is adorned with garlands, and with gilded horns before the altar. In his ignorance he hears one praying, and he sees the very grain he labored to produce fixed on his head between the horns, and felled, he stains the bl with blood the knife which just before he may have seen reflected in clear water. Instantly they snatch out entrails from his throbbing form, and seek in them intentions of the gods. Then, in your lust for forbidden food, you will presume to batten on his flesh, O race of mortals. Do not eat such food. Give your attention to my serious words. And when you next present the slaughtered flesh of oxen to your palates, know and feel that you gnaw your fellow tillers of the soil. And, since the god impels me to speak out, I will obey the god who urges me, and will disclose to you the heavens above, and I will even reveal the oracles of the divine will. I will sing to you of things most wonderful, which never were investigated by the intellects of ancient times, and things which have been long concealed from man. In fancy I delight to float among the stars, or take my stand on mighty Atlas's shoulders, and to look afar down on men wandering here and there, afraid in life, yet dreading unknown death, and in these words exhort them, and reveal the sequence of events ordained by fate. O oh, sad humanity! Why do you fear alarms of icy death, afraid of sticks, fearful of moving shadows and empty names, of subjects harped on by the poet's tales, the fabled perils of a fancied life? Whether the funeral pile consumes your flesh with hot flames, or old age dissolves it with a gradual wasting power, be well assured the body cannot meet with further ill, and souls are all exempt from power of death. When they have left their first corporeal home, they always find and live in newer homes. I can declare, for I remember well, that in the days of the great Trojan War, I was Euphorbus, son of Panthous. In my opposing breast was planted then the heavy spear-point of the younger son of Atreus. Not long past I recognized the shield, once burden of my left arm, where it hung in Juno's temple at ancient Argos, the realm of Abbas. Everything must change, but nothing perishes. The moving soul may wander, coming from that spot to this, from this to that, in changed possession live in any limbs for whatever. It may pass from beast to human body, and again to those of beasts. The soul will never die in the long lapse of time. As pliant wax is moulded to new forms, and does not stay as it has been, nor keep the self-same form, yet is the self-same wax. Be well assured the soul is always the same spirit, though it passes into different forms. 
therefore that natural love may not be vanquished by unnatural craving of the appetite i warn you stop expelling kindred souls by deeds abhorrent as cold murder let not blood be nourished with its kindred blood since i am launched into the open sea and i have given my full sails to the wind nothing in all the world remains unchanged all things are in a state of flux all shapes receive a changing nature time itself glides on with constant motion ever as a flowing river neither river nor the fleeting hour can stop its constant course but as each wave drives on wave as each is pressed by that which follows and must press on that before it so the moments fly and others follow so they are renewed the moment which moved on before is past and that which was not now exists in time and every one comes goes and is replaced you see how night glides by and then proceeds on to the dawn then brilliant light of day succeeds the dark night there is not the same appearance in the heavens when all things for weariness are resting in vast night as when bright lucifer rides his white steed and only think of that most glorious change when love d'aurora pallas's daughter comes before the day and tints the world almost delivered to bright phoebus even the disk of that god rising from beneath the earth is of a ruddy colour in the dawn and ruddy when concealed beneath the world when highest it is a most brilliant white for there the ether is quite purified and far away avoids infection from impurities of the earth diana's form at night remains not equal nor the same tis less to-day than it will be to-morrow if she is waxing greater if she wanes yes do you not see how the year moves through four seasons imitating human life in early spring it has a nursling's ways resembling infancy for at that time the blade is shooting and devoid of strength its flaccid substance swelling gives delight to every watching husbandman alive in expectation then all things are rich in blossom and the genial meadow smiles with tints of blooming flowers but not as yet is there a sign of vigour in the leaves the year now waxing stronger after spring it passes into summer and its youth becomes robust indeed of all the year the summer is most vigorous and most abounds with glowing and life-giving warmth autumn then follows and the vim of life removed that ripe and mellow time succeeds between youth and old age and a few white hairs are sprinkled here and there upon its brow then aged winter with his tremulous step follows repulsive stripped of graceful locks or white with those he has retained so long our bodies also always change unceasingly we are not what we were yesterday or we shall be to-morrow and there was a time when we were only seeds of men mere hopes that lived within a mother's womb but nature changed us with her skilful touch determined that our bodies should not be held in such narrow room below the entrails of in our distended parent and in time she brought us forth into the vacant air brought into light the helpless infant lies then on all fours lifts his body up feeling his way like any young wild beast and then by slow degrees he stands upright weak-kneed and trembling steadied by support of some convenient prop and soon more strong and swift he passes through the hours of youth and when the years of middle age are past slides down the steep path of declining age this undermines him and destroys the strength of former years and mylon now grown old weeps when he sees his arms which once were firm with muscles big as those of hercules hang flabby at his side and helen weeps when in the glass she sees her wrinkled face and wonders why two heroes fell in love and carried her away 
O time, devourer of all things, and envious age, together you destroy all that exists, and, slowly gnawing, bring on lingering death. Yes, even things which we call elements do not endure. Now listen well to me, and I will show the ways in which they change. The everlasting universe contains four elemental parts, and two of these are heavy, earth and water, and are borne downwards by weight. The other two devoid of weight are air, and, even lighter, fire. And, if these two are not constrained, they seek the higher regions. These four elements, though far apart in space, are all derived from one another. Earth dissolves as flowing water, water, thin still more, departs as wind and air, and the light air, still losing weight, sparkles on high as fire, but they return along their former way. The fire assuming weight is changed to air, and then, more dense, that air is changed again to water, and that water, still more dense, compacts itself again as primal earth. Nothing retains the form that seems its own, and nature, the renewer of all things, continually changes every form into some other shape. Believe my word, in all this universe of vast extent, not one thing ever perished. All have changed appearance. Men say a certain thing is born, if it takes a different form from what it had, and yet they say, that certain thing has died, if it no longer keeps the self-same shape. Though distant things move near, and near things far, always the sum of all things is unchanged. For my part, I cannot believe a thing remains long under the same form unchanged. Look at the change of times from gold to iron. Look at the change in places. I have seen what had been solid earth become salt waves, and I have seen dry land made from the deep, and far away from ocean seashells strewn, and on the mountain tops old anchors found. Water has made that which was once a plain into a valley, and the mountain has been leveled by the floods down to a plain. A former marshland is now parched dry sand, and places which endured severest drought are wet with standing pools. Here nature has opened fresh springs, but there has shut them up. Rivers aroused by ancient earthquakes have rushed out or vanished, as they lost their depth. So, when the lycus has been swallowed by a chasm in the earth, it rushes forth at a distance and is reborn a different stream. The Aracinus now flows down into a cave, now runs beneath the ground a darkened course, then rises lordly in the argolic fields. They say the Mysis, wearied of his spring, and of his former banks, appears elsewhere, and takes another name, the Caicus. The Amenanus in Sicilian sands, now smoothly rolling, at another time is quenched, because its fountain springs are dry. The water of the Anigros formerly was used for drinking, but it pours out now foul water, which you would decline to touch, because, unless all credit is denied to poets, long ago the centaurs, those strange mortals, double-limbed, bathed in the stream, wounds which club-bearing Hercules had made with his strong bow. Yes, does not Hypanus, descending fresh from the mountains of Samartia, become embittered with the taste of salt? Antaisa, Pharos, and Phoenician Tyre were once surrounded by the wavy sea. They are not islands now. Long years ago, Lucas was mainland. If we can believe what the old-timers there will tell, but now the waves sweep around it. Zankel was a part of Italy, until the sea cut off the neighboring land with strong waves in between. Should you seek Helike and Burris, those two cities of Achaia, you will find them underneath the waves, where sailors point to sloping roofs and streets in the clear deep. Near Pythae and Troizen, 
A steep high hill, quite bare of trees, was once a level plain, but now is a hill for, dreadful even to tell, the raging power of winds, long pent in deep dark caverns, tried to find a proper vent, long struggling to attain free sky. Finding no opening from the prison caves, imperious to their force, they raised the earth, exactly as pent air breathed from the mouth and placed a bladder, or the bottle hides stripped off the two-horned goats. The swollen earth remained in that spot, and has ever since appearance of a high hill hardened by the flight of time. End of Book 15, Part 1 Recorded by Zoe